from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Career Talk on Business Radio. Here is your host, Dr. Don Graham. Talk, your career insider. We are here in Business Radio and we are powered by the Wharton School Series XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. I'm the career director for the Wharton MBA program for executives right here in sunny Philadelphia. I'm also a licensed psychologist and former corporate recruiter. And we are here with Dion and Dana, who is standing in for Michelle, who is at homesick. Hey, get well, Michelle. We're all here sending you good karma. We're taking your calls right now. 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. If it's Thursday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, we are open calls as always, and we'd love to hear from you. Questions, advice, tips, ideas, we are here. And taking your calls right now, 844-942-7866. And today we're going to talk about a wildly popular book, The Two-Hour Job Search. If you don't have it on your bookshelf, you're going to need to get this one. Um, It's been out for a while, but it is is one of the books that, that just is timeless. And we have the author and creator of the two-hour job search with us today in studio, Steve Dalton. Um, And this book has a very ultra-specific process for using technology to find the right job faster. And we're going to talk about those tips today, answer all of your questions related to the job search. And you're going to get some good takeaways in terms of how you can make your process more efficient. So if you're in a job search, if you know someone who's in a job search, you're going to want to stay tuned. So Steve Dalton uh, is also a coach at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business, where he also earned his MBA, and he's a regular contributor to several publications, including the Huffington Post, and we're excited to have you in studio. It's great to be here. Yeah, so we've had Steve on the show before a couple of times, but this is the first time you've actually come in studio. So we're very excited to have you here. So so the two-hour job search, this is a book that we uh, recommend to all of our students. And as a matter of fact, you're here today to speak to our executive MBAs on this process. And we share your book with our students. And we've got nothing but rave reviews on this process. So people have been doing job searches for decades, since the beginning of time. So what makes your book different, Steve? I think technology has changed dramatically. I would say circa 2000 when Monster.com came out. It used to be enough just to be good at resumes, cover letters, and interviewing. That's what I needed when I graduated from undergrad back in the the late 90s. Um, But all of a sudden, all these extra layers of complexity have been added on top of it, online job postings being the most notable. That process of distributing resumes used to take time, money, and effort with stamps and stationery, going to Kinko's to print your resume out. But Monster.com kind of blew that up. And now the problem is no longer distributing your resume effectively. There's tons of apps and and resources for doing that. The problem now is actually getting your resume noticed, getting consideration. Getting that first interview is the crucial bottleneck in the modern job search. And while a lot of books go into interviewing and resume development, not really that many go into getting that first interview in any level of specificity. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about your book. So if if you kind of think about the job search as a process, um, you just hit the nail on the head. There's that that kind of hole in the middle that, okay, I have my resume, I have my LinkedIn, and it's all set to go. And I know, you know, even maybe a couple of companies I might be interested in, and and I've done my mock interviews, but it's kind of that that leap from, okay, I've got my tools to how do I get in front of the decision makers that you completely demystify in this book. And that's the entire focus of the book. So so you're assuming you, you have your resume and you have all that done, but now you're going to demystify how you get from the tools to the decision makers. Indeed. So, um, so tell us why you came up with this process. It was actually born from a very dark place. It was uh, the financial crisis in 2008. I had a student who had an offer with Bear Stearns but lost it when they were acquired by J.P. Morgan. It was like the early stages of the financial crisis before people knew what was going on. Uh, But the banks were also not hiring at that point. So she couldn't get any interest. And she came into my office devastated, asked me, how do I find a job? International student, so she lost her visa as well. Um, And I started giving her tips that I'd gotten. Let's get a list of targets together. Let's figure out where you have contacts. But she stopped me and said, how do I come up with a list of targets? Where do I look for target uh, contacts? And I realized she had the, the capacity to follow instructions, but not the capacity to be creative and curate. 
And then I realized that was I didn't have that process either. So I felt like I was selling snake oil. I needed to either get out of the industry or I needed to answer that question for real. How exactly does someone go about getting that first interview? Mm-hmm. Um, I had just gotten my MBA, so I was I, I noticed all of these wonderful behavioral science and behavioral economics concepts that people were applying to business all over the place, but weren't applying to the job search itself. Um, so I decided I I to take a chance at it myself. I was as qualified as anyone. It turned out. Um, but really, the further I got into it, the deeper I learned to appreciate how difficult and painful the modern job search had become. Mm-hmm. Right. Technology is supposed to make it easier. But in fact, it, it it's so oversaturated, the Internet, that, yeah, sure, you can apply to a gazillion jobs, but that may lead to nothing. It inflicted massive amounts of decision anxiety on any job seeker out there. Suddenly, mm-hmm. it went from this constrained cover letter resume exercise to this exercise in ambiguity. There's a million things you could be doing, a million new apps, but which one is best worth your time when you only have a spare hour to do your job search in that evening because you're trying to hold down a full-time job looking to switch out, or you're holding down multiple part-time jobs trying to make the transition to something full-time. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Career Talk on Sirius XM Channel 111. We're here with Steve Dalton, who's the author of The Two-Hour Job Search. And if it's Thursdays, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, it is always open calls, and we're taking your calls all hour long at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. You can also tweet at Dr. Don Graham. Any questions you have about the job search, we are here today to answer those. And we're very fortunate to have Steve Dalton in studio, who is the author and creator of The Two-Hour Job Search, which is a a ridiculously popular, well-thought-out and step-by-step process to get you through the most difficult part of the job search, which is how to get yourself in front of those decision makers. So the most popular part of your plan is the LAMP list. So tell us what this LAMP list is. So it's amazing for as much time as we plan to spend on job searching, how little time we spend actually getting our strategy together. And I don't mean a lot of self-evaluation. My book sort of assumes you kind of know what you want to do. There are wonderful books out there that will help you help you through that if not. But it assumes you kind of have an idea of what you want to do, but coming up with this list of targets um, and putting them into a logical order of attack, that's the step that a lot of people are missing. So in 70 minutes, the LAMP list allows you to do that in an efficient manner, come up with a large consideration set of 40 employers in 40 minutes, and then with the remaining 30 minutes, find three data points which are easy to find and predictive of success to help you put that list of 40 into a uh, an order of attack. Mm-hmm. What I like about your book is, Steve, that it, it takes you from a reactive job search to a proactive job search. And most people, they think, okay, I, I kind of have a title in mind and maybe some companies in mind. So I'm going to go type in their name in Google and see what, what they're hiring for and throw the applications up. And so, you know, that's a very haphazard thing. We know that not all jobs are advertised and, you know, some of the best ones will never be advertised. Maybe some smaller companies that don't have the budgets to be throwing jobs up there on the internet. So you're you're really one limiting yourself to a very small amount of available open positions. But two, you're being very reactive to what somebody's putting in front of you. Whereas your process helps people to be very proactive and say, "Here's what I'm going to target," and that's a very different approach. So. I know one of the things you said was 40 companies, and this is a part that even, you know, our students are like, 40 companies, because most people come up with the, you know, if you're in tech, you're like, okay, Google, LinkedIn, Amazon, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, and it's like 40, you know, so people can rattle off maybe the first 10, but it's after that 10 that it gets a little bit difficult. <laughs> Uh, I, I find that when people don't have a rigorous brainstorming method for coming up with a list of considera- a consideration set, they stick to the usual suspects, the, the big companies that are well-known. But that's the same list that everybody else who's doing a job search is making as well. So high competition, law of success. What a rigorous brainstorming process does is it helps you get beyond that obvious layer towards one where a single uh, referral may be enough to get you into that final round interview directly. Uh, versus a very popular company where and everybody's doing uh, refer- getting referrals and, and um, it's harder to break through the noise. So I split that 40-employer list into four different 10-minute chunks, so four different brainstorming techniques, multiple ways to skin a cat. So if you, the, And the first method that you use is that brain dump of obvious employers, the ones you've always had your heart set on. It's critical to capture these, but you need to brainstorm beyond them because you don't want to be one of 25 bachelorettes in this process. You want to be the bachelor. Yeah, I love your I love your bachelor at analogy. Can you share that with our listeners? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, if you're the bachelor on a show called The Bachelor, uh, you're going to win, uh, which just gets good game theory. But if you're one of 25 bachelorettes, so, so the story of the show, for those of you who have not 
been paying attention to it. Uh, 25 uh, bachelors selected, 25 bachelorettes are furnished for him in a house, for lack of a better way of putting it. And each week he picks one or more uh, to puck off the show until only one remains and romance blossoms uh, for a couple of weeks. And <laughs> That's the important part. <laughs> Uh, and it makes sense for the guy to go on this show. And there's a gender-reversed version called The Bachelorette going on now, but we'll talk about The Bachelor for simplicity's sake. If you're The Bachelor on the show called The Bachelor, you're going to win. That's great game theory. But I don't understand why a woman would go on this show because supply is re- restricted. There's only one Bachelor. Demand is stimulated. There's 25 Bachelorettes. That's 4% odds. There's a, a, an opportunity cost. You have to give up several months of normal dating to go on the show. And it's a, a blind purchase. You don't even know who you're fighting over before you get on there. It's I call this artificial desperation, and it's hilarious when you're watching reality TV, but it's heartbreaking when you realize that's the default setting for every job seeker out there when they throw their resume into an online job posting, kind of already knowing they're never going to hear back. Mm -hmm. And after you do that a few times, it takes a toll on your confidence, and once you start getting desperate, nobody wants to have anything to do with you. Mm -hmm. So it's critical to make yourself the bachelor in this process, not one of 25 bachelorettes over and over and over again. And that's what your process does, and we're going to talk more about that. But if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Career Talk on SiriusXM channel. 111. And if it's noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, we are here taking your calls. We always love to hear from you. 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Any questions you have on the job search, we have expert Steve Dalton in studio today answering all of your questions about how to get in front of the decision makers. So if you've been getting ghosted with your online applications or just, you know, not, not finding a way to get yourself in front of that person where you can really talk about your strengths and your skills, Steve Dalton's process is going to help you get there. So I want to talk a little bit more about the seduction of technology because your process is very much based on technology, um, but there's a lot of kind of pitfalls in it where where kind of technology can take you down a dark rabbit hole, I think, as you call it. So you know, I think the seduction in general is that this is easy. I see a job, I apply, I get it. And it doesn't work that way because a lot of the online postings, I mean, let's face it, um, they're not all real. I mean, I I think we can pretty much say that some of them are out there like that old jar of mayonnaise in your fridge that (laughs) they've just never been cleaned up. Some of them are unfortunately scams, just trying to collect resumes. Um, You know, some of them are publicity for the company. They just want to kind of give the perception that they're hiring. Um, some of them have a pre-identified candidate. And that's a tough one because I will say it's pretty difficult, if not impossible, to win a job that has a pre-identified candidate in the company. But due to legal reasons, they have to publicize the job. And some companies even have to interview people. Steve, I've had people who've, who've been flown in to an interview when the company already knew they had a pre-identified candidate, but they had to go through these motions, which is terribly unfair and um, a lot of work for a candidate. But these things are happening when you're being um, in a reactive job search. And I I think, are there other reasons why um, you've created this process? I mean, because these are heartbreaking things for our clients when we say, Mm -hmm. oh, I had my heart set on this. They flew me out and I lost to a pre-identified candidate. I think if you want to learn to cook lasagna, you don't want tips on cooking lasagna. You don't want a list of ingredients. You want a recipe. And then you can always change the recipe going forward. But the nice thing about a recipe is if you follow the rules, you get predictable results. Um, I look at my process as being the exact same thing. I'm not giving tips. I'm not giving uh, elements. I'm giving instructions. And therefore, you can predictably expect what will happen next. The one thing I think I'm most proud of about this process is that your odds of success increase steadily over time. So eight hours spent implementing the two-hour job search, which is all rules-based. It's just following instructions. will bring you eight hours closer to an employment in a way that eight hours spent applying online to a bunch of online job postings will not. You'll be in the same place after that eight hours as when you started. Uh, so really, to me, it's it's taking a slower process. If you want to grow corn, you don't just put corn in the ground. You've got to put seeds and you've got to tend to them. You've got to harvest them. Uh, it's a slow process. Unfortunately, I'm asking people to give up that sugar high of getting that email from an online form that says, congratulations, your application has been successfully submitted. My process does not feature much online application at all. 
Uh, I'm asking people to give that up in order to take a more slow, methodical relationship building process. But it does work over time. Per hour invested, it gives you far superior returns and more predictable returns than online job postings. And I love when you present to our students, you, you often say something along the lines of, uh, you know, there's, there, I've taken all the, the risk or decision making out of it because I don't want to have to think about it. It's, it's all in there. Feel free to just blame me yeah. if you follow the process and it doesn't work. That way, at least you don't have a big, another big barrier to people's success in this process is they feel so much ego tied up into it because it's tough to face down rejection every day and to face down getting ignored and trying to wake up and do the same process again the next day. Um, feel free to externalize this process. Give it a shot. Buy into it wholesale. Shut your brain off and just implement instructions for a while. And you'll know within a week or two if it works for you or if it doesn't. Uh, if it doesn't work for you, fire fire my process and try a new process. Uh, but what I was hoping when I wrote this book was that people would come up with competing processes and, and the market would have different options to choose from and find one that works best. I just haven't seen that sort of response of a duplicate set of instructions that take a different tack. And here's the reason why, because it does work. It does work, Steve. I've, I use this with our executive students here and we work with a lot of switchers. And that's something that you know, mid-career, when you're trying to make a career switch, you absolutely cannot use the online process because you don't have the right keywords and your, your resume is going to be probably not even get to a human because it's going to be sucked out by the applicant tracking system. So so we use your process for that. And here's the thing. Just recently, I had somebody who's a double switcher, so both function and industry, land a job and get paid more money <laughs> in a company that came from that lamp list. And and the important part of it, and this is where I want to kick off, was that list of 40 companies because he landed with a company that probably isn't a household name because it's a B2B business. But the 40 companies that you, you um, advocate for listing is where he found that company. And I think that's the beauty of your process is that it really gets you to step outside what everybody else is doing. You have some great stats in your book about, you know, how many applications some of the big firms get and, and the fact that, you know, 99% of the companies out there have something like fewer than 500 employees. And these are companies you may not hear every day in conversation, but these are fantastic jobs. And that's what your process helps people get to. 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We're here with Steve Dalton, the author and creator of the two-hour job search. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. And of course, if it's Thursday, we're taking all of your calls live on air. If you want to do a uh, mock interview, if you want to do a mock lamp list, we'd love to do it with you. <laughs> so let's talk about the the lamp list because we talked about the first 10 companies are pretty easy. They're, they're the usually big names and stuff like that. So how do you use technology? You mentioned it takes about 40 minutes to build that lamp list. How do you use technology to get to those 30 that may not so easily pop into your mind? Uh, the good news is that everything in my process, I'm very strident about making it free, about using tools that are widely accessible without a, a premium subscription. Um, so the four different methods that I use to create that list of 40 employers, the first is your dream employer method. Just what do you have in uh, jumbling up your mind? Who are the employers that you're fixated on right now? Get them out of your head and into a spreadsheet. The second method is the alumni method or the advocate method. So LinkedIn is a wonderful tool for this. So if you have been to university, put your most recent university in the education field, put a functional keyword like marketing or graphic design into the job title field and see which employers people like you are working at currently and supplement your list with 10 from that selection. Um, the third method is the Indeed method. Uh, so Indeed.com is an online job uh, posting aggregator. It's good at a number of things. Unfortunately, getting you a job is not one of those things. It's wonderful for Intel. It's great at telling you which employers are hiring specifically in the geography that you're interested in. So use it for what it's good at. Look up jobs in your area or areas of interest and then pluck those employers' names and put them into your list without any additional data because some of those aren't going to be worth your time to network with. Others will be. Uh, but it, the most important thing is brainstorming beyond the obvious. And the fourth and final method is the trend method. Um, so just read for fun. We consume a ton of information in our spare time um, without any compensation. I want to find a way to get people paid for it because that's what you're getting smarter at every day without even trying. Uh, so why not turn that into a, a wage? These are things that you're going to be credible um, in conversation about. 
So hedge your bets with the, the ideal, what you think you should be doing with something that would just be interesting and fun for you, where going to work won't feel necessarily quite so much like work. So what about somebody, there's a couple of traps along the way to this list of 40. So so one obvious one is when you get on Indeed or, or Google Jobs or whatever you're on, that you start applying to jobs. Yes. And so how do you avoid that? Because that's a big temptation. You don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> just don't do it. Uh, I think... I think we all kind of know it's not going to be successful. Um, I, I call applying to online job postings a defensive job search because you're job searching for stats, not for efficacy. And by stats, I mean it gives you some sort of social proof that you're putting effort in, in the form of hours and in the form of applications submitted. So you can go back to your parents or your loved ones and say, uh, they ask, how was your job search today, honey? Oh, I dropped 34 resumes and I spent six hours on Indeed. Uh, we know you're doing your best. So it gives you that proof that you're, you've been putting that effort forward. And my process asks you to give up that kind of sugar high social proof that doesn't really translate or correlate with success for something more methodical. You'd be quantifying your success in phone conversations that you had that day or emails that you sent or email responses that you got, which are a lot less readily accessible in terms of understanding for a non-job seeker or for a less sophisticated job seeker. Um, so the trap is just know that there's probably someone already earmarked for that position that you found online. Uh, on an online job posting, but that person's job's about to open up. Once they slide over, you'll be well positioned because you'll have a relationship at that employer. So it gives you a lasting benefit for future opportunities that may not have been posted yet or may have just been posted and they've already contacted you because they like you. Um, that's really the sweet spot of this process is to get warm contacts at the co employer before they, they have a need so that when they post that job, you're the candidate they already have in mind for it. So, so step one, Avoid going down the rabbit hole of applying online because you're doing your research online and this is going to be very seductive. Something else that I think can get in the way is if you are very targeted to brand name companies, when you start digging in and finding these uh, companies that maybe you haven't heard of, is that you kind of have this bias. Like, I don't know. Is that a good company? Maybe I should research the company. Like, what? what how do you suggest people research the company or I'm actually very, rather anti-research because research is something that can take forever um, and doesn't correlate with getting any sort of progress. It's The best place, source of information about an employer is people that work at that employer. Now, you don't want to use their time to ask them questions about information that's on the internet. You'd want to ask them questions that you can't get anywhere else. You know, What's your favorite part about working at the employer? What trends are most impacting your business right now? Um, that's things that you could ask 10 people, get 10 different answers, and all of them are correct. But it's not something that you can get off the internet necessarily. Uh, so for me, it's it's about building those relationships. That will make you smarter than any sort of internet research than you can do. My recommendation is get all of the obvious employers. In fact, I'm very pro uh, having a bias towards large, well-known employers because they tend to have the longest lead times for hiring. So if you start there, you find a relationship uh, referral, they send you some other people to network with, you go do that. While you're uh, waiting for that second round to fill up, you can go to some of the smaller organizations that do more just-in-time hiring. Um, so I'm very, very positive about uh, having a bias towards your bigger and, and more famous employers. Just don't begin and end your brainstorming there. Yep. So in order to get through this 40 list of companies in 40 minutes, you need to be very careful about not, not getting seduced into research on companies and applying for jobs. You need to stay very focused. So now you have your list of 40 companies. Now what? How do you, how do you organize these? Uh, just like with the brainstorming of the list, it's important to adopt a, a design thinking mindset, this prototyping mindset. The lamp list is not a contract. It is a strategy document. And it's a balance sheet. It's correct for a snapshot in time. But if your goals change or if you have some realization on the way, you would just dissolve it and make a new one. It's not something that you'll be updating constantly. So good enough quickly trumps perfect slowly. And that's a really hard concept for job seekers to embrace. But once you get that approximate list of 40 employers, then we want to find three data points which are good enough quickly, uh, but predictive of success. So we're using the 80-20 rule, getting 80% of our results and 20% of the time and effort. So LAMP, L is for the list of employers, A is for the presence of alumni, M is for motivation, and P is for the currency of postings. So alumni, it's a yes or no column. Does your, that organization currently employ one or more uh, alumni of your most recent educational organization? Um, motivation. But it uh, can a, be any contact. It's, it, it's really your network contact. It's really your network contact. So <laughs> if you look at a company's name and you know your uncle works there, even if he's not an alum, that would be – If you know your uncle yes. works there, chances are you're going to get hired there. And probably that <laughs> it correlates well with yeah. success in this process. Indeed. Um, so the second data point uh, – so 
alumni, that's a proxy for the likelihood of finding a sympathetic contact. M is for motivation. That's a proxy for your pain tolerance because reaching out for referrals and, and advocates is painful. Uh, it involves rejection. It involves getting ignored and having people be weird and awkward with you. Uh, so it's critical that you start with employers that you're highly motivated to find a contact at. And that's just a five-minute process of gut feeling. When you see that company's name on a scale from one to five, how motivated are you to reach out to people at that employer, even if the first few people ignore you? And postings, that's a proxy for urgency. If they're looking for people exactly like you right now through an online job posting, it's time-sensitive that you get an advocate there. Otherwise, you'll miss out on that opportunity or the opportunity that will be made when an internal person moves over into that role. Mm -hmm. And so you, you fill in all of these columns, which in the book talks about in detail, but it takes two hours to do this. It takes 70 minutes to do the lamp list and 50 minutes to draft the outreach. Okay. So if you do this and you don't fall down the rabbit hole, mm -hmm. which is the big the big if, <laughs> yes. then then you have this in 70 minutes. Um, and like you said, it's a snapshot in time. So you have the list and next step is going to be to reach out. And I think this is, this is again, another process where people are very confused. How many times do I reach out if they didn't get back to me? Am I bugging them? Do I reach out via, via phone? Do I reach out via email? Do I reach out via LinkedIn? How do I do this? And I, I think a lot of people get stuck in their head on this point. So they end up not reaching out at all, yes. which, which doesn't really help. So when we, when we come back in the second half of the show, I want to talk about now you've got this lamp list, this, this kind of beautiful chart of everything you need to do it's prioritized based on how many contacts you have, how urgency, how much urgency there is because they have postings. And now you're going to kind of dive into to the outreach part, which which can get a little scary because that's coming out from behind your computer. So, <laughs> uh, hey, you're just tuning in. You're listening to Career Talk on Sirius XM Channel 111. We're here with Steve Dalton, who is the author and creator of The Two-Hour Job Search, a wildly popular book and extremely effective method, especially if you tend to get stuck in the job search between figuring out what you want to do and getting your documents together and then getting in front of the decision makers. This makes it all clear. So we're excited to have him in studio today. And of course, if it's Thursday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, we take your calls all hour on any job search question you might have, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. But right now, we're going to go to our pre-break quiz. Quiz. There's a quiz. According to research from Colorado State University, drivers who have a car with this are more prone to incidents of road rage. According to research from Colorado State University, drivers who have a car with this are more prone to incidents of road rage. If you think you know, we'd love to hear from you. 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. You're listening to Career Talk on Sirius XM Channel 111. We'll be right back. You're listening to Career Talk on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Dr. Don Brand. Welcome back to Career Talk, your career insider. We are in Business Radio, and we are powered by the Wharton School Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. And hey, in case you haven't heard, my book, Switchers, is coming out. It's due on shelves in two weeks. So if you are looking to make a functional industry change or both, you're going to want to get this book because what we know is that the traditional job search strategies just don't work for you. And guess what? In it, I reference the two-hour job search quite a bit because, Steve, you also have a process that works really well for switchers. And we're very excited to have you here in studio today talking about the two-hour job search on the show, of course, we're taking your calls all hour at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. If you've got a question about the two-hour job search or just any question in the job search process, you've picked the right day to call because we are here to help, 844-942-7866. So, Steve, before I forget, where can people learn more about you or reach you? Uh, TwoHourJobSearch.com. Uh, that's the number two or the word two, but TwoHourJobSearch.com. And I also have a LinkedIn group for users of the book uh, called the Two Hour jo Job Search Q&A Forum. Uh, so there's about 4,000 of us there, and I'm on there pretty much every night answering questions, giving tips, providing updates. Awesome. Awesome. So we're talking all about the two-hour job search. And in the first part, we talked about creating that ever so important lamp list, which takes about 70 minutes. And it's coming up with a list of, of 40 companies, which is a lot. But your book talks about how to, to kind of source those companies and get beyond the popular ones, which 
are all valid too, but to get to get deeper into that list and then how to organize them so we know what's priority and who's hiring now and where you have contacts because these are going to be the key parts. I mean, contacts are, are what we're going to talk about next. And I'm very excited because we talk about some fun terms that you have for categorizing your contacts, which are curmudgeons, obligates, and boosters. So we're going to find out what those are in just a second. But before we do that, I'd like to answer our pre-break quiz because we're getting a lot of calls on this. So um, <laughs> so according to research from Colorado State University, drivers who have a car with this are more prone to incidents of road rage. Dion, you know I'm coming to you first. I've got the answer. All right. Well, you always do. Well, yeah. So I want to say tinted windows. And here's why. Ooh, I like that. Because you want to have road rage, but you don't want to actually get into a fight. And you don't want the person to actually see you. So you can, so you can do all your mad stuff and all your, you know, hand, <laughs> hand gestures <laughs> with, without them actually seeing you. Like what hand gestures? This one. Oh, 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 we are a PG-13 show, and that was not a PG-13 movement, so this is when we're thankful we're on the radio. Oh. Note to self, don't drive with Dion. <laughs> no, that's oh. not it. Oh. And you might get two buzzers for what you just did to me, <laughs> which I'm sure everybody can imagine. All right, all right. Dana, I'm, I'm just going to move on. Okay, my answer is a navigation system. Ooh. Because I feel like sometimes it fails, takes you the wrong way, you get all angry. You get angry at other people because your navigation system didn't work. Yeah. It makes sense. It does make sense. Sadly, it happens to me. Sadly. It happens to me. You have to blame it's someone. It's their fault. And you can't blame like that, that lovely person on your navigation system who's always so friendly. Yeah, so, exactly. No, that's not it. Mm. Um, we're going to go to... Jerry in Michigan. Jerry, um, cars that have this are more prone to incidents of road rage. What do you think it is? Without a doubt, 100% manual transmission. Okay, and why do you say that, Jerry? Because while you're just cruising, hitting your brakes on, I'm pumping my brake, pumping my clutch, working out my calves, and it burns and it hurts. It makes me furious. <laughs> it, I know it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That took a left turn. It's <laughs> happening right now. I'm telling you. <laughs> People oh, in Michigan, first. watch out. Jerry's <laughs> on the road. And it's dangerous. And how, All right. But how, I mean, you can't do sort of the hand gestures that Dion was showing us when you, you're sort of driving with manual transition. Can you? Oh, transmission. Yeah. You can. Oh, yeah. You can. In the middle of all that work, you just put it in neutral, do what you got to do, and go back and gear. All right. Well, I learned something new. <laughs> that, 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 Jerry, you convinced me that is an answer. That is not the answer I was looking for, but I will tell you, you've convinced me that that is an answer. So so you're driving right now, so I'm going to let you go because I want you to be safe. I like I that he said working out your calves. <laughs> that was impressive. <laughs> it's a new workout. You want to – yeah, I'm just not going to go there. Um, Jordan, Jordan in Michigan. Um, I was going to say cruise control, but now that that's off the table, or sorry, I was going to say manual transmission, but how about cruise control? Ooh, how about, okay, so why would cruise control make people more prone to incidents of road rage? Because if you are in cruise control and somebody messes up, you have to actually try and hit the brake. <laughs> so so Jerry's working out. Jordan's not doing anything. Jordan's <laughs> like, I have to eventually remember to hit the brake. I don't well, think I you. Two, I have two cars. I have a manual transmission Jeep, which is terrible. So that's what I was going to say that. But I also have a, a Mercedes that has adaptive cruise control, which changed my life because hmm. it doesn't make you hit the gas or the brake. Okay, but it gives you road rage. No, I don't have it anymore. Oh, okay. The, the car <laughs> it, it takes away the road rage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning so much. Um, it is not cruise control, but I'm very happy to hear that your new car has um, has solved this problem. That's very, very comforting to know. Thank you so much, Jordan, for giving us a call. Ben in Connecticut. Ben, what what is your answer? My answer is bumper stickers. Bumper stickers. And why bumper stickers? You have very opinionated people uh, flashing their opinions all over a society that doesn't like opinions. I just flashed on <laughs> my opinion. Yeah, it was not a bumper sticker, though. Oh, all right. Bumper stickers. Actually, you are correct. And oh. and I'm just going to say Steve Dalton had the same answer. and he's So we have to give Steve a ding. Um, uh, there you go, Steve. 
Thank you. Thank you. I'll take it. (laughs) So, yeah, according to Colorado State University's drivers have um, bumper stickers or vanity plates. So I don't want to miss those. And they say because people who mark their territory are more aggressive. So apparently. So if you're driving around and that was going to be my hint, Dion, is that um, because I know people were saying manual transmission stuff, but you could actually see it. You could actually see it on the car. I would have still had the same answer. Well, yeah, because you can see <laughs> yours. You can see, you can see yours, but when I was getting, yeah, no, you're right. Do you have any bumper stickers in your car, Ben? No, I do not. I keep it, uh, keep it clean and classy over here. See, look yeah, at I that. like Ben. Look I'm the that. same way. I'm, no bumper stickers. Yeah, and I'm quite certain Ben would never do what you just did to me, Dion. I'm just gonna <laughs> say that. <laughs> He's keeping it clean and classy out there. Yeah, you go. You safe to drive on those Connecticut roads. Thank you so much, Ben. I appreciate you giving us a call and and keeping your car bumper sticker free. Um, <laughs> You're listening to Career Talk on Sirius XM Channel 111, 844-844-942-7866. We're talking all about the two-hour job search, and we have Steve Dalton in studio, and we're talking about bumper stickers and, and road rage, Rubbish. and, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm assuming you could you could get some kind of, like, like rage when you're applying to jobs, too. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's got to, that, that frustration has to go somewhere. Yeah. I mean, that's why The Bachelor works so well, right? You've got 25 people for whom uh, things are not working out quite the way they planned. Um, and that's where the drama happens. But I'm going to say, just just like the, the Mercedes that we had on the call a few minutes ago, um, that your process reduces that road rage. Mm-hmm. For the, I mean, because you take all the guesswork out of it. I mean, you literally do. And I love it that you have in your book at the end of every chapter, kind of like, what if? Like, what if this happens? Or what if this happens? And you have a solution, which is awesome. Because, you know, a lot of books, um, you know, go along and they tell you how to do it. But they don't tell you what to, ha- what to do if it doesn't work, which is a very cool thing. So we're talking about the lamp list. And now we're going to talk about what the heck are curmudgeons? And why <laughs> does it matter? For me, what I found is a lot of the advice that I had been given assumes this sort of homogeneity of the people that you encounter in your job search. Like you put yourself out there, you ask for help, and people will help you. And it just never worked out that way. There were a lot of people who ignored me, a lot of people that were mean to me, uh, a lot of people that strung me along, and a lot of people that actually would help me. But um, it wasn't as graceful as I was led to believe it would be back in the day. So I like to set expectations for my job seekers that it is to make it more predictable. Granted, I'm using probabilities, but it helps to know what you're getting into. So I think there are three segments of contacts that you'll run into when you reach out to uh, people at the employers you're targeting. Um, There's a type that will never get back to you under any circumstances at all. I call these people curmudgeons. They're awful people. They hate babies. They kick puppies. Um, They're just the worst (laughs) people ever. Yeah. Maybe in a radio (laughs) booth. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Or there are delightful people who just have no interest in helping you find a job. The thing to note here is they're not the worst segment you encounter because they're clear about not being helpful. The second segment is a group I call obligates. They're the worst segment because they give you the illusion of being helpful, but they don't actually want to help you. They are I call them obligates because they're motivated by a sense of obligation. They've gotten help in the past and want to simulate paying it forward without incurring the risk that actually paying it forward would involve. Uh, so they do things like set up a meeting with you, but cancel at the last minute, get really weird about rescheduling, get back to you slowly. And sometimes you have to follow up with them a bunch of times. They're dangerous because the expected value of working with them is negative. Whereas with curmudgeons, it's zero. They just ignore you and make it clear they're not engaging with you. <laughs> now, the majority, the vast majority of the help you get in your job search is from this segment I call boosters. They say things like, if you ask for my help, you automatically get 20 minutes of my time. Unfortunately, they're a small percentage of the population you encounter. I would estimate that for every five people you reach out to, uh, you'll hear back from two. One will be an obligate and one will be a booster. Um, and yeah, I would bo- see it as a bell curve. Like most people are obligates. And, yeah. and I, there's, I, there's a very specific category of obligates. It's those, pers- those people who say, send me your resume and I'll pass it along. Bam, obligate. I, I almost always peg them for an obligate. Yes, but they can still provide useful help. Um, yes. If there's a specific job that they're passing along, very helpful. <laughs> if there's not and they just are like, sure, yeah. They're just not the target of the process because they don't react in a predictably positive fashion. And I only want job seekers interacting with people who offer a positive return on effort. Um, obligates can pay off randomly, but they're like buying lottery tickets. They're not something to invest in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but boosters give you predictable help over time. Um, you just have to be willing to kiss a bunch of frogs to find your princes in this process. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like dating. Uh, well, yeah, quite a bit. So how do you know someone's a curmudgeon? Because 
I think, you know, people reach out once and they're like, oh, curmudgeon. But th- I don't think that's the case. For me, I and these these buckets are approximates. They're not hard and fast rules. Um, curmudgeons are indicated by the fact that they just don't respond, period. Um, the the cutoff that I use is for a valid response is three business days. So if you email somebody on gen- in general, people who want to be helpful will get back to you within three business days. People who take longer than three business days in general are not going to be helpful either because they're never going to respond or because they're really not that excited about responding and they hope you get helped by someone else. Um, so really, you don't take any sort of different approach, whether they're an, uh, a curmudgeon or an obligate. Um, if they don't get back to you in three business days, you assume they're one of the unhelpful segments and you move on to someone else. Mm-hmm. And your book really does a nice job at kind of detailing all these. So, and, and All right. So these people would come from the second column in your in your lamp list? Not necessarily. Okay. The first person you reach out to is not always going to be an alum of your school. Um, in fact, that's that's one philosophical change since the book was published is I now recommend seeking those who are functionally relevant over those who are alumni. Because if you want to do graphic design, it, you're going to have the best informational meeting with a graphic designer than with someone from finan- uh, in finance uh, from your school. Even if that graphic designer is from a completely different school and a completely different background, at least you can talk shop. Um, so functional relevance is the most important uh, factor of all. It's just not what we use to prioritize our targets in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so how do you reach out to these individuals? I mean, are we doing it via LinkedIn? What is, what is kind of the standard today, Steve? Um, I think the... Best way to do it is through LinkedIn groups. So LinkedIn groups to me are the best kept secret in the job search. They allow you. Um, so LinkedIn groups, you can if you're on LinkedIn, you can join these groups. Uh, so you can join the TEDx group and uh, or the TED Talk group and and learn about people discussing their favorite TED talks. Um, your universities, if you attend a university, also have groups. Join all of the groups you can. You can join up to fifty at one time. When you share a group with someone, you have the ability to message them directly without needing to find their email address. So it just takes a lot of the work off of you to find contact information for people. Um, so that's the best way to find them. I think the best way to write them, um, the anchor point has traditionally been cover letters, but that's exactly wrong. Cover letters are long. They're very focused on you. Success in finding boosters, which is what my process coaches you through, is getting them to talk about themselves. They're more interested in talking about themselves and sharing their wisdom than they are learning about a stranger. So the better benchmark versus a cover letter would be an email to your boss's boss, something very short, concise, get to the point of what you need. They're happy to help. They just need to be able to do so quickly. I think that the shorter is better is kind of applying across everything nowadays. People just want you to get to the point. Mm -hmm. Just get to the point. What do you want? (laughs) But that old advice is uh, dies hard. Mm -hmm. So the the 400 word outreach email where you talk about yourself a bunch that looks like a cover letter that you stress over the wordsmithing of. It's like writing poetry. Uh, Forgive yourself for not doing that. No one wants to read that. You don't want to write it either. Um, Instead, imagine an email to your boss's boss. Keep it very short. And that's where the four point email comes in. Uh, It's a technique that I teach, which helps you in a minimal amount of time, send a predictably successful outreach email that designed to attract boosters in particular. Mm-hmm. So general rule of thumb, the longer your email, the longer the response is going to take because they have to read it or they have to open an attachment or whatever. So, I mean, you don't want any of that. I can respond to a 50-word email while I'm waiting in line at the supermarket on my iPhone. Mm-hmm. I can't respond to a 400-word email in the same circumstances. So I'm gonna have, if I, even if I want to help, I'm going to have to think, Oh, I'll answer this when I get back to my desk tomorrow morning. But then I get back to my desk tomorrow morning and work happened, and I never get around to answering that email. So you actually make it harder for people to respond the longer your email is. So what are you asking for? You're asking for an informational meeting? You're asking for advice and insight. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, nothing so stuffy as saying an informational meeting, mm-hmm. but um, that's effectively what you will be asking for. Um, now, realistically, when you ask for advice and insight, people know you're asking for a job. But to make that ask explicit is just fundamentally bad manners. Just like if you go to a house party, you don't walk up to the host and tell them, I bought you this bottle of wine for free because you're cooking me dinner for free. Uh, you go in, you set the bottle of wine down on the table and you eat all their food. That's There's an exchange. There's, there's an exchange going on, but to call attention to it explicitly would be considered bad manners. Mm-hmm. Similarly, to call attention to your specific job search is, would be considered bad manners um, for, to a stranger. Asking for advice and insight is a much more polite way to make that approach. Yeah. People know. Yeah. People get what you're doing. Yeah. So one of the things that I think I've seen people make a lot of mistakes on is is not really clarifying like 15-minute phone call, like mm-hmm. something very specific because a lot of people are still asking for coffee or for lunch. And, you know, I'll be honest, that's a, that's a time commitment for somebody that I don't know. 
I can understand why people wouldn't be comfortable meeting strangers uh, in person. So my recommendation is don't worry about the logistics, about the time, about the venue. Uh, just see if they're willing to respond to you. If they're willing to respond to you, then you can take the extra time to find time slots in your calendar or to offer them the option of a phone call or meeting in person for coffee and letting them opt into whichever one they're most comfortable with. Yeah. So a lot of people also ask, um, do I bring my resume to this meeting <laughs> if I'm meeting somebody or do I send them my resume? Uh, no, no, just <laughs> never. Just don't do don't just don't don't resume anything. Um, <laughs> it's it's awful. Uh, again, no one enjoys reading it. You don't enjoy preparing it. Um, and LinkedIn exists, and that's the more concise resume that's in a standard format for everyone. If I want to know more about you, I'll probably look you up on LinkedIn. For me, if you attach a resume to your uh, a request for information that's too transparent, a request for a job. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to be subtle about it, my recommendation would be put your short uh, LinkedIn shortcut uh, below your name and your signature. And that way, they especially if you have a common name where there are uh, dozens of Kevin Lees on LinkedIn, if you are Kevin Lee uh, 21, um, put that shortcut under your name. That way someone can click on your profile and get that that objective background information about you. People, when they're meeting strangers, don't necessarily care about the subject information. They care about the objective information. Mm -hmm. Where did you work? How long have you been working? Where did you go to school? I think people, when they kill themselves over their resumes, they spend so much time on the subjective information and the bullet points. Uh, don't do that. Uh, no one reads that far anyway. Mm -hmm. Plus, you don't know what, I mean... You don't even know what you may or may not be applying for at their firm or whatever. So, I mean, you're really kind of putting the cart before the horse when you're doing that and you're shooting yourself in the foot because you don't want them having an older document when you could have re revised it based on your conversation. Great point. Um, 844-Wharton, 844-942-7866. We're talking about the two-hour job search and demystifying that, that middle part of the job search between having your documents done and getting to the decision makers and getting in front of them. So what do you want? the outcome to be, Steve, of of this this phone call or this meeting? What, what is the best outcome? The best outcome is converting that booster into an advocate, someone who will be your eyes and ears within the organization. They can be exponentially helpful uh, because they can help direct you to other organizations, other groups within that company. Uh, but more importantly, you want someone to say, is there anything, when you ask them, is there anything else I can be doing to put my best foot forward? If they say no, you're good. I'll, I'll let you know when something comes up. That's your dream uh, endpoint where you know you don't have to do any further networking with this employer because you've got someone who has your back who will let you know when they have an opening uh, and will proactively reach out to you. And only at that point would you move on to the next company on your list. So while we came up with a list of 40 employers in our LAMP list, we're only ever going to be targeting five of them at any one time. And you're probably never going to get past number 10. It's just the act of doing a thorough brainstorm that gives you the best top five instead of just the usual suspect first top five that you thought of. But you keep focusing on those those top five going deeper and deeper until you are confident you have a true advocate within that organization. Only then do you knock that one off your list and move on down to number six. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what a lot of people get wrong about this process. They assume I need to approach all 40 or I approach the first five and then I approach the second five and then the third five. And in fact, it's not that at all. It's very sequential. You focus on one through five until three. You've, you've got an advocate at number three. Okay, now you move to number six and that becomes your new fifth company and you work your way down that list that way. So a lot of people also ask, you know, is it okay to contact more than one person at a given company at the same time? What is your advice for that, Steve? Uh, my recommendation is to go in uh, parallel, multiple employers at once, but in sequence, one person at a time. Um, generally, when I see people go wrong in this, I, I don't want to generalize, but it's always investment bankers. Uh, they email five <laughs> you people. You don't want to generalize, but you will. <laughs> but I will, freely. Um, they email five people at the same firm at the same time, not realizing they all sit in the same cubicle farm. The chimes go off simultaneously, uh, and they all get together at lunch and make fun of the job seeker outreach emails that they got. Uh, but even worse than that is all five say yes and agree to talk to you, and they all give you the same advice. Oh, you need to talk to Wendy next. She's the hiring captain. So you just got the information you could have gotten in one call in in a half an hour, in two and a half hours, actually much more when you factor in like logistics for organizing those chats. I want you to go one person at a time within that organization, but wait three business days before you try somebody else. If you haven't heard back from that person within three business days, it's a sign they're probably not a booster. They're probably a curmudgeon or an obligate. So let's hedge our bets and try a second person at that same organization. Um, so going in sequence within each firm, but five firms at once. Okay. And your book, I know your book goes into this in detail, but um, so, and I know your book actually goes into how to write that, that email. Um, 
I, and there's something else interesting in your book is that there's there's those people who won't respond unless you've you've reached out to them two times and stuff like that. I mean, how do you kind of know if those things are going on? To me, I recommend reaching out to people twice and only twice. Okay. Once initially and once to follow up about seven business days later. So I teach something called the 3B7 routine. There's a, a wonderful video my employer, Fuqua, uh, Duke University's business school, has produced on the 3B7 routine, which is my process for managing outreach systematically. And it's a very reminder-heavy system in Outlook or Google Calendar because calendars are great at prompting you for action, reminding you what action needs to take place today. A lot of people try to do it in spreadsheets, but spreadsheets are better at highlighting what you forgot to do yesterday instead of telling you what you need to do today. Um, so in this outreach, the outreach email works hand in hand with the tracking mechanism and vice versa. But the goal is boosters in this process. That said, even boosters can get busy. I told you these were general categories. Mm -hmm. So most boosters will get back to you within three business days, but not all boosters. Um, so the seven business day follow-up is there to give that booster a second chance to respond to you and to give them a way to save face. However, it also serves an added benefit. It may attract some obligates who could justify ignoring your first email and pretending they didn't don't remember it. But it's a lot harder to do that when you send a follow-up seven business days later. Um, so they may begrudgingly help you at this point, forward your resume on to someone else, or recommend you to a colleague who's more directly tied to what you actually want to be doing. Uh, so you can still get usable help from obligates. They're just not your target audience. Mm -hmm. But you don't get that benefit if you don't follow up. Yep. So it's the process then in general is, is being uh, very systematic, very methodical. And so for people who really like a step-by-step -step plan, mm -hmm. and, and this part of the process never has one, you have filled in that hole. So, um, you know, as we're kind of wrapping up, are there any general tips? Like you have those great sections at the end of each chapter about, you know, what if this happens? What if this happens? Um, is there anything that constantly comes up that you have to say, well, be aware if this happens, huh. here's what you should do. Is, it, is there one that stands up for you? I think that's, that's a really good question. And I think the one, one that we haven't spoken to yet is the importance of going back for a referral if one is not offered in the informational meeting itself. Okay. We haven't talked too much about informational meetings, but basically you want to get people to talk about why they're good at their job. Um, and then they'll start to reciprocate and ask you about yourself and your goals. Um, but a lot of people will make the mistake of honoring their outreach uh, email, of not asking for a job, but asking for advice and insight, but recognizing failing to recognize that the goal, the, the desired outcome of this conversation is a referral. It's a referral to someone who knows more about that job. Um, if it, one is not offered during the call itself, I don't recommend asking for it explicitly, but sometimes they are offered. If one is not offered, however, I recommend following back up a week later and make, and asking for it explicitly. Uh, an email such as this, upon further reflection, this is definitely something I'd like to pursue further. How would you go about doing that? If you or me, can you, for example, can you recommend someone I should speak to next? Uh, that is when you really determine whether that referral will turn into an advocate or not. Mm -hmm. And when you're referred to someone else, you are far more likely to turn that person into an advocate than you were with the first person you spoke to, because that person has already gotten a warm invitation to you or a warm introduction to you. Um, so the second informational always goes better than the first. And there's how it's done. And I will say, um, you know, this this book, we again, we use it with our students, and I've seen many people have lots of success with it. You do have to be dedicated to doing the process. There's a lot of rabbit holes you have to avoid. But I think if, if you are very serious about finding an opportunity or making a career switch, this is this is the way to do it. So congrats on an awesome book, Steve. Um, Thank you. We're so excited to have you in studio sharing your advice. And one more time, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at 2hourjobsearch.com. And the LinkedIn group is 2 Search Q&A Forum. And I'm also on Twitter at Dalton underscore Steve. Awesome. Awesome. And thank you to all of our callers and listeners today. We, we know what to look out for on the road. People with bumper stickers, stay, <laughs> stay far away. Um, Dia and Dana, thank you so much for making this show sound great. And as always, um, you can hear our replays throughout the week. You've been listening to Career Talk on Sirius XM Channel 111, and we will see you next time.